March of 2022, Chile will be inaugurating a new president, a former student leader, someone who led a coalition of left-wing parties to come together and who was a driving force in the movement towards a new constitution. President-elect Boric made international headlines when he announced his female majority cabinet. Pretty remarkable. And as I remember thinking when I first read about him, he was born in 1986. He's younger than me. My name is Kate Graham. Thanks for joining me for No Second Chances. This season, we're traveling the world to see what's working and what Canadians can learn from beyond our borders about increasing the representation of women in our top political roles. And today, we're in a country where the political scene is hot. Chile. Between elections, a citizen uprising, and a new constitution in the works, well, there is a lot to unpack. And... It's the country of a leader I've been a bit of a fangirl of for a long time. Exactly one woman has served as president of Chile, and she was also the first female leader elected in all of South America. Today, she's the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights. And I am pinching myself as I say this, but today I'll be talking to Michelle Bachelet. So let's get started. First of all, let me begin with something I like to say today to Canadians, which is that we should know about Chile. The first uh, trade agreement Chile, the, Canada made with Latin America was with Chile. Uh, but Chile is also the destination for mining um, investments, Canadian mining investments. So many of our own, uh, you know, pension plans I and other, you know, um, sources of wealth are tied up in Chile. So this is Canadian interest. Meet Dr. Veronica Schild. Born and raised in Chile, she is a professor emeritus of political science at Western University, and she has written extensively on feminism and the women's movement in Chile and Latin America. Chile is a very interesting country because, as I said before, uh, you know, it has a lot of parallels with Canada. Uh, it is also a country where the formation of, a, of the modern state in the 19th century uh, came as a, re, as a cost of uh, the relation with indigenous peoples. And it is also a settler society, right, with a very old established um, then Yugoslavian <laughs> Uh, uh, you know, communities, German communities, Italian, Swiss, Welsh, right? Uh, so it is, in that sense, a, a very interesting uh, parallel to ours, not, not English by any means. Um, but uh, in addition to that, it is a country that has had a very interesting history in the 20th century. It has, uh, first of all, one of the oldest um, socialized medicine plants of the entire hemisphere, including Canada. So the Chilean came before the Canadian. The difference is that the level of informal work in Chile was much higher. So, you know, most people were not covered, right? But so that it has a 20th century history that parallels, in a sense, ours. Similarities, yes. But of course, a lot of important differences too. 
Chile has experienced several periods of major political turmoil. Chile is, has always had a presidential system, and since the dictatorship, which was never simply a military dictatorship, it was a civilian military dictatorship, with all the powerful economic elites of Chile supporting the project of the dictatorship, which entailed creating a system for opening up the economy with a real focus on exporting what we can export best, i.e. natural resources, right? So creating a constitution, the constitution of 1980, that basically privatized public goods, all of them, from water to roads, everything, hospitals, uh, devolved responsibility for social programs and for education to the local level. All of this was enabled by the Constitution of, of 1980. It created a system of, uh, you know, Chile right now has the highest number of free trade agreements. The 1980 Constitution, although it's been amended several times, is still in effect today, but not for long. You know, people always focus on the, uh, what happened in October of 2019 when, you know, some innocuous protest by young students who simply refused to accept yet another increase in fares. I mean, I, I think about what would happen in Toronto if you had the fare increases five times a year, not once, five times with the government saying we cannot do anything because the constitution says that we cannot do anything. And what the students, the high school students did is they just jumped the turnstiles and said, you know, we're not paying, you know, this is usury. And, you know, the, the police moved in force, beat them up and smoked them out of the place. And this created such an outrage in the population, such an outrage. That, that was kind of what ignited the, you know, the, what they call the explosion, the rebellion. I call it a rebellion, a social rebellion, that at some point had the, the approval of 75% of the population. It then went down, right, because it then got mixed up in the evenings and at night with, you know, di you know direct forms of vandalism and burning property, not, you know, but it was, it was a massive demonstration of discontent. The sheer scale of this uprising left the government with little choice but to declare a state of emergency. The day after the government set up a, a state of basically, you know, a, um, a curfew. So I couldn't go out after six o'clock in the evening. You had helicopters, you know, it was like a war, war zone. And that following Friday, the largest demonstra demonstrations in Chile's history took place. A million and a half people converged in downtown Santiago alone. I mean, as a message to the government, right? So they were forced at that point to say, you know, and this is a center-right center, center -right government, you know, a, a very difficult coalition to manage. Hmm? And they, the government was forced to agree to uh, social peace. This was the agreement, social peace and a plebiscite to ask the population whether or not they wanted a new constitution. And guess who signed that agreement? 
Gabriel Boric, much to the discontent of some people in his own coalition. Mm-hmm. So that is the origin of what we have now. But I want to put here a little feminist content because people ignore it. And the fact is that in Chile in 2018, between March and June, there were massive demonstrations uh, in universities by students, female students, who basically said, you know, we have had enough with what we have, i.e. an anti-harassment legislation for which the university does absolutely nothing. There is no protocol, there is no accountability, right? The the professors, well-known harassers, sexual harassers, uh, continue to be in place and nothing happens. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of women, young women, with naked bodies and, you know, red painted hands on their breasts, shouting slogans, you know, enough is enough. This activism by this new generation of young women, and you see how spirited I get, (laughs) uh, you know, that went on. So by March of 2019, the year of the social rebellion, the women's march was considered to be March 8th, the largest social demonstration in Chilean history. So it was only upended by the, you know, rebellion of 2000, of October, this citizens' rebellion. But until then, these, you know, mobilizations by young women, and not young only because they managed to bring in everyone else, were absolutely, you know, huge in scope. So what, what am I saying with this? that not only do we have, you know, the push for a new constitution, but there is a feminist push that comes, if I can put it this way, from below, right? Because suddenly all these programs on television, you know, the equivalent of the CBC and the this and the private ones, they are all concerned about what the hell is feminism. It doesn't mean anti-man. What is it? What do feminists want? And who are the feminists? Putting these questions on the agenda, that is no small feat. And the scale of these social movements is awe-inspiring. But the response was brutally violent. As of today, there are almost 500 people in Chile who lost at least one eye to not rubber bullets, rubber-coated bullets, which the police shot. So people have been, you know, they were they were blinded with gas canisters. They were blinded with uh, with these rubber coated bullets, and they were gassed constantly. I mean, it was like an armed invasion, right? The public was enraged, and finally, the tipping point arrived. There is a plebiscite, as agreed, right, as a way of diffusing this explosive situation. People are asked through a plebiscite, so a consultation, two questions. One, do they want a new constitution, yes or no? And two, what form should the constituent convention take? Should it be experts only, elected politicians only, or should it be a mix of elected and regular citizens? 
or a citizens-only convention. And by an overwhelming majority of almost 80%, the population selected citizens-only. And the feminists had already uh, reached one milestone, which has made it into a worldwide, it's an unprecedented milestone, which is that the convention that drafts the constitution, it has to have gender parity going in and in result. We have gender parity going in, but results may be, you know, they were forced to have the same number of men and women going in and the same number coming out. And guess what? More women had to be excluded to create the balance of the genders. So that is an unprecedented situation. Unprecedented indeed. In May of 2021, Chileans elected 155 citizens who collectively will form the Chilean Constitutional Convention. Part of the process includes considering citizen proposals, so long as they are accompanied by 15,000 signatures, and almost 80 of these have been received. I see this as a real breakthrough. The ministry that Michelle Bachelet created during her second term in government, the Ministry for Women and Gender Equity, which was before a ministry, Bachelet tried to make it a central one, but it has been ignored and by the government in, uh, you know, the, the president in government now, it has really been second, second, you know, insignificant. But what Boric, Gabriel Boric, the incoming president has done is he has deliberately chosen to place that minister at the center of his cabinet. You know, so all the signals are there for saying, you know, we have 14 out of 24 ministers who are openly feminist. They're all on the left. They're all committed to social justice, to economic justice and to being inclusive and, and to putting uh, feminism at the center, all of them, right? It's a new generation of, of young men and women who define themselves as feminists. So there is a cultural shift. Yeah, so it seems. For politicos and feminists alike, Chile is definitely a place to watch as the process to build a new constitution unfolds, but also as the new president and female majority cabinet step into power. And, as Professor Schild suggests, some of the seeds of what is sprouting today were planted long ago. In 2006, Chileans elected their first female president. Michelle Bachelet was born in Santiago and trained as a physician before getting into politics. She served as Minister of Health and Minister of National Defense before her election as president. And as if that isn't impressive enough, she's also a mother of three and she speaks five languages. What an honor it is for me to introduce you to now the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet. I come from a cat family who was always, I mean, both of them public servants. My mother worked at the University of Chile. My father was an Air Force officer. And they, are, they were always very committed to, to, to the real life. They were always uh, uh, teaching us, me and my brother, how humankind must be respected, that we can be, that we should have equal rights and equal opportunities. 
and that every one of us can make a difference. Uh, they were not the members of any political party, but they were very political in the sense of caring about the world, caring of what happened, trying to be well informed. And so we had discussions, I mean, interesting conversations at the table while we were having dinner or in any situation, they would invite very interesting people to the house. So I think all of that gave me a sort of interest for other things more than my individuality and uh, of course uh, also my mother was a very strong person in terms that she worked the whole life and she always told me that women can do everything uh, that we're not in necessarily have to be a wife if we want we can be wife but that's and have children but that is our choice and that we don't have a standardized or normalized um, if I would say behavior that was the adequate one that I could decide my own life and that I could do whatever I wanted if I work hard and, and, and I do all the, the necessary efforts to, to achieve something that I wanted. So I think there was a very en enriching environment in my house. But emotionally, on one hand, they were great parents. They played with us a lot. They were really lovely person. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, it was a, intellectually speaking, it was also very interesting for me. So I guess, but, but mainly, I, I guess I always say that <laughs> I, I thought that I, my milk bottle became the word responsibility because it's, it was also not only like an intellectual thing, it was like, oh, these things are happening in the world. What can I do to help solve them? You know, so it's like the sense that I cannot just walk out and don't see things that are happening. I have to, I can't help myself. I have to do something about it if I can, as, as much as I can anyway. I asked the High Commissioner if she ever imagined as a child or young woman that someday she would become the president of Chile. Uh, I, no, I never thought. I mean, I, I even I mean, even older, I mean, being a young a teenager, I would have laughed. I would have said, no, no way, impossible. <laughs> but it was not in my dream, I have to say. It was never into my dream. Even one year before being a president, I was not into my dream. It's just that I decided, okay, people uh, believe in me. Uh, I can. I have to do this. But it was not, oh, I want to be president. I want to have power. And maybe one of the problems in my, our societies, I don't know if in Canada, is that we, uh, women are teach in a way that power is a bad thing. Huh? And power is like a male issue and like a bad thing because people use power for bad things. So in some way, women don't feel that they're entitled to power. And I think that has to change because young girls should understand that power is the capacity to transform your dreams into realities. That is power. And, and that is not a bad concept at all. On the contrary, it's a great concept. And Bachelet knows a thing or two about power. After the 1973 coup d'etat, which brought dictator Pinochet to power, her father was detained and tortured. He died in 1974, months before Bachelet and her mother were then also detained and tortured. Bachelet spent four years in exile, first in Australia and then in Europe. She returned to Chile in 1979 and then became involved in politics. And from there, the rest is history. I was Minister of Health first. And nobody would have thought of me like a president of the republic because at the end, health is caring. It's like very feminist, even though I was the first female minister of health. At the end, is to care for others. And that's what women traditionally do. So I was not seen at that time like, oh, yeah, she could be president of the republic. No, I feel that 
being a minister of defense was what made people believe. And we didn't help go to any war. There was no disaster. Uh, it, but so I, so I, I was doing it okay. And I was speaking about in a country has been so broken because of political history and dictatorship and so on. Being the, the daughter of a man who has been died because of torture in prison and, and myself was in prison and speak about how we create a country who is capable of living uh, with all these uh, grievances. So I think all of that made people look at me that I was a woman with my story. That's a very special story because I was a socialist, divorced, agnostic. And, and, and so it was really not the more traditional women. But even that, uh, even knowing that, uh, people, I think, thought that I could play a role, that I could be... Um, that I could help to reconciliate as well uh, parties that have been so divided in the past. Uh, and I think that helped. But of course, all the rest that I said, uh, all the rest in terms of family, mother, and, and, and friends, and, and, and all of that meant that we could break uh, this, the glass ceiling. Now, just breaking that ceiling doesn't mean that everything had changed. I was called the mummy. I was the mummy of the nation when I was president. That can have different interpretations now. <laughs> but it's interesting about gender. Huh? Nobody would have said mommy to a male president, even though it could be very protective. Of course, it could be have important social protection plans and so on. But of course, also on the, on, on the, not on the nice side, uh, they speak about your size, if you're big, or, 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 or they speak about issues of your life. How do you cope when you have problems? You don't have a husband. Uh, how are you going to do that? And, and so on. I mean, they never ask a man, a male president, when you have a problem, how do you solve it? And nobody believes that he's going to solve it with his wife. No? I mean, it will be thanks to his wisdom, his political capacities, et cetera, et cetera, unless the wife is a leader, et cetera. No? But it's very weird. But with women, they would ask me, how are you going to be able to, to cope with all this. It will be so difficult for you being a woman without a husband. So, uh, or they will speak about my clothes and things like that. I mean, you will never have on, 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 on other persons. Or if you sometimes feel really emotional about some, but normal emotion, they will solo imply that I was being hysterical and things like that. I mean, there were thousands and thousands of anecdotes. But you know what? I understood that this is normal because I was the first one. So everybody who in some way is uh, opening a new path uh, will receive a, a lot of, of, uh, of comments. And I do believe, I don't know if you have seen Borgen. Um, I'm sorry. Michelle Bachelet watches Borgen on Netflix. Could I love her more? Uh, yes. Hi, Commissioner. I have seen Borgen. When I spoke with her, when I went, I was at UN Women and I went to visit her and she was telling me the same things. So when she was a candidate, they would be speaking about the size of the purses, uh, or if she had a boyfriend or, or not, and not, never discussing about the kind of ideas and priorities and programs she was presenting to the country. That was not an issue. That The discussion was about really things that don't speak to the to the substance, you know, to the substance of what a woman can uh, bring to to be a, a prime minister or a president, etc. I asked the High Commissioner to share with me a few things that she was most proud of during her time as president of Chile. 
So one of the things that I'm most proud of is all the social protection uh, plans and schemes that we developed, uh, targeting not only children, women, pregnant women, um, uh, older people, etc. But also in particular, there is a particular program called Chile Crece Contigo. It would be like Chile grows with you. Uh, and, and it was a particular program that we developed in my two governments uh, to support uh, mothers and children and, and then to support with kindergarten, with health programs. We had that before. It's not that it was nothing, but we enhance it. We improve it. And uh, access to uh, nurseries and kindergarten, much wider than we had before. And, and, and beautiful places. I mean, the great uh, quality of infrastructure. So dignity will be in the center. And so we could unleash all the potential of those children. Huh? So they can have much better future than what their parents or grandparents had. So that's one that was, and it included a lot of things like uh, uh, things we gave the families to support, to, 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 to help um, I would say that the development of the children uh, and good environment, etc. Uh, many others are, of course, programs related to women uh, against violence against women, of course. But also, I have to say, programs that we did to try to also bring more rights to to people from LGBTI community. Uh, I mean, to try to expand the rights of everyone. And to, and not in an abstract way, in a concrete way with laws that really permit them to enjoy the full, uh, the full rights, but also to, to improve the social perception and to change mindsets that are important to change if you want to maintain this uh, kind of policies uh, uh, further. We spoke about Bachelet's work at the United Nations, where addressing gender inequality is a major part of meaningfully advancing human rights. We have a very complex mandate because we're supposed to promote, protect human rights for everyone, everywhere. And that's not a simple task. So uh, every every human being counts. Uh, uh, Martin Luther King said, injustice everywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So I think that in that sense, prioritizing is a very difficult and complex exercise. And in today's world, we are facing these huge challenges, COVID-19, um, the, um, and who has threatened our health, destroyed our economies, uh, livelihoods, and increased poverty and uh, inequality. We have conflicts uh, around the world that continue, mixed with climate change and its consequences, IDPs, migration. So there's a lot of threats to our existence. And for millions of people, poverty, discrimination, violence, and exclusion means denial of human rights, like health, like safety, clean water, food, education. Of course, we will always be looking at political and civil rights. That is very important. But we are also considering, as the Universal Declaration considered, that economic, social, and cultural rights are also very, very important. Uh, we think, as the Secretary General presented in their common agenda, that we, we, we're facing an urgent choice of, I could say, breakthrough or breakdown. Hmm? If we do not come together to all these global challenges that are affecting all of us in, in one way or another, we will have a, a breakdown. Huh? And the consequences for our planet will be disastrous. On the contrary, if we are able to embrace concepts like solidarity, collectiveness, cooperation, uh, it can make 
us work together on, on a common good, if I may say. Um, that includes things like vaccination for all, for example, or to address the triple crisis that is climate change, but it's not only climate change, pollution and uh, biodiversity loss. Uh, we need also a new social contract between government and the people because I think people has lost uh, trust in institutions. Uh, this global, this social contract has not responded to the social needs needed to political possibilities. So we need to rebuild trust among people and governments. Eh? Uh, and also, I think that the post-COVID recovery uh, will be an opportunity to ensure that we don't go back to that normality that brought us here. I mean, that we don't go back to those inequalities that brought us here so that we could have more access to uh, public goods, universal social protection, uh, universal health care coverage, equal access to quality education, skills, decent work, housing, water, etc. And of course, universal access to the internet. I mean, the Agenda 2030 <laughs> that is there to try to uh, promote. The, but of course, in all of that, Always, always, for me, women and girls, active and equal participation is fundamental. And every time, for example, if I'm promoting economic, social, cultural rights, or advising state on COVID-19 recovery measures, or documenting violence uh, of human rights, violations or crimes, in situation of conflict and instability, I'm always, always giving a specific attention of the experience that women and girls are suffering because they are disproportionately impacted by COVID and by everything. And as Michelle Bachelet made clear, part of the solution is seeing more women in politics and in leadership and building a community of support around those who step forward to serve. And, and of course, I can say that uh, women's political representation in political areas result in greater investments in uh, social protection and greater focus on the environment and climate justice. Um, Women participation in peace negotiation is also linked to sustainable uh, or more durable solutions. Um, no magic, but more durable solutions at least. Uh, and there are also evidence that women in the private sector more uh, in, in leadership can lead, uh, have good, good practices in terms of uh, performance. Um, I, I think that uh, First of all, it's obvious, and I was, when I tried to explain these things in my country, because we are a football lover country, we would say, would you ever, would you ever play a, a, a game with half of the team? I mean, the national team, have you, would you ever think about that? No, I said, no, of course not. So why are you not including the half of, of our uh, population, the half of our, the economists would say, human capital? Huh? And people said, well, <laughs> I'm not sure I convinced all of them, but at least some were thinking afterwards. And the other important thing is that, uh, and Toni Morrison said that if you have some power, then your job is to empower somebody else. And I think that all of us, with our voices, with our, our power, our energy, women and girls leader can empower other women and girls in all their diversity. When I work in defense issues, there was this magazine from different countries and there was this slogan that I love because it really has, has a relationship with what happened to women many times. And it says, we women can do all, but not all at the same time. And that was good in the sense of you cannot expect to be the best wife, the best housewife, the best mother, the best, 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 best. Sometimes you have to make choices. And I mean, it's not 
the choice to spend the best or the worst. No, what I mean is sometimes you have to sacrifice more little things if you think that your contribution will be important. And that's why it's so important, um, if I would say, sorority kind of uh, of, of uh, support, mentorship for women, young girls and women who want to go into politics, because politics can be really cruel and really difficult, and particularly for women. Michelle Bachelet's words have been ringing around in my head since we met. You heard her. It's breakthrough or breakdown time, where we choose the path to take as we address the major global challenges we face. And she talked about some big ideas. Collectivism, solidarity, trust in public institutions. Her vision of democracy is an active one, an ongoing push to empower people and strengthen our opportunities to shape the places where we live. This feels like an especially important lesson right now as we face global crises. It is breakthrough or breakdown time, but we have a choice. Will we let this rip us apart or bring us together? I certainly hope it's the latter. Thank you for joining me today in Chile. Next up on our No Second Chances Tour is another nation with lots of lessons to share, New Zealand. I will see you there. No Second Chances is a special project of Canada 2020. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kate Graham, and edited by Aaron Reynolds. No Second Chances is produced by the Canada 2020 team, including Carolyn Smith, Aisha Jara, and the leadership of Executive Chair Anna Ganey. The music is written by Meredith Yeyanos. More information about the project can be found at nosecondchances.ca. The No Second Chances has been made possible by the generous support of Margaret McCain and MasterCard.